Welcome to NACE Clinical Highlights. I'm Dr. Greg Sherman, Chief Medical Officer for NACE. Thank you for joining us today for the second of a two podcast series on iron deficiency anemia. This second podcast is on management. Back with me today are two experts in this area. First, Dr. Wendy Wright. Dr. Wright is a family nurse practitioner. She's the owner and family nurse practitioner for Wright and Associates Family Healthcare in Amherst and Concord, New Hampshire. Wendy, thank you again for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this podcast. Also with us is Dr. Lee Schulman. Dr. Schulman is professor of OBGYN at the Feinberg School of Medicine of Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back, Lee. Greg, thank you for having me, and it's great to be here with you and Wendy to do this podcast. Thank you both. So let's jump in. Lot to cover. So Lee and Wendy, we defined iron deficiency in our last podcast. So let's get into management strategies because that's ultimately what we need to do when we find iron deficiency anemia. So Wendy, most people will look to oral iron supplementation first, and clearly there are many different options out there over-the-counter agents, dietary supplements, prescriptions. Can you talk to our colleagues about what's currently available? Absolutely. And if you walk for, for one minute down the aisles of a local pharmacy, you will see that not only is it confusing to us as providers, it's often confusing to our patients as well. So there are a multitude of over-the-counter options, right? There's ferret ferric uh, or ferrous fumarate, there's ferrous gluconate, there's ferrous sulfate. Those are three big options that are available over the counter. And what often determines for a lot of individuals which one they use is really just the one that they kind of grew up on, right? Which one are we most comfortable with? And in talking with my colleagues, there's often kind of this perception out there, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, about one being a little more tolerable than the other in terms of its side effects, but the reality is they're all pretty similar. There's also what a lot of people don't realize is that there's actually a prescription oral option that's now avail available, and this is called ferric maltol. And then there's often even IV iron that we're going to talk a little bit about moving forward. So lots of options available for our patients, both over-the-counter, prescription, and even in IV formulations. Thanks, Wendy, for clarifying that. Um, so, Lee, I'm going to switch with you, you know, with the side effects that are so common, and uh, Wendy alluded to GI side effects. How do you overcome and mitigate some of these adherence challenges when patients experience these side effects? Well, as Wendy said, the the, uh, the number of, of iron supplements that are available to our patients, and let's start with over-the-counter, is, is speltifying. Uh, there are lots of clinicians who just get to the concept that iron is iron. Uh, I, I think for me, until recently, I encouraged my patients uh, to more frequently use the ferrous uh, salts rather than the ferric salts. Although Wendy brings up a, a, an important point about new iron, uh, oral iron uh, supplements that are now available, and, and one in particular, a prescriptive uh, oral iron. Um, but if we're going over the counter, while clearly 50% uh, or even higher 
uh, of my patients who use oral iron will have side effects that impact compliance. Uh, 40 to 50% may do well with it. So it, I discuss the importance of compliance, uh, of using uh, the supplement on a regular basis, depending on what the uh, actual uh, method calls for, whether it's one tablet, one capsule a day, or one tablet capsule twice a day. And if they're compliant, if they're good with that, if it's not causing adverse GI or other issues, then we're fine. Uh, what I'm concerned about is that 50% or more, that is not fine. Uh, that is going to stop taking it within about, you know, seven to 10 days. Uh, and I'm going to be left with dealing with ongoing iron deficiency anemia and a patient who's upset about the, the regimen that she's taken. Uh, and for those women, uh, in a sense, the the new option, the new ferric maltol option, uh, which has a considerably lower uh, rate of adverse GI side effects, uh, not only can be a first line option, but clearly needs to be an option if, if over-the-counter regimens uh, have failed. Wendy, I'm going to ask you to just clarify that because now you've both mentioned, you know, constipation, adherence is a big issue. What is maybe unique about ferric maltol in terms of mechanism that's different than the others that may improve uh, GI side effects? Sure, and I'd love to answer that. And I, but I want to take one second, if I can, Greg, to just talk about those over-the-counter options because there was a really great study that was published by Cancelo et al. It's published in 2013 where they examined those over-the-counter options, and they looked at ferrous gluconate and ferrous sulfate both of which have about a 30% adverse GI side effect profile. Then they also looked at ferrous fumarate, which is at about 47% of, uh, of patients who took it had an adverse event GI related. So you asked me what's different about ferric maltol, the newest prescription option onto the market. So what they did was they took the ferric salt and they surrounded it by three little maltol complexes, which actually protect that iron and that salt. <clears throat> so it's not readily broken apart in the gastric system. And it's absorbed in later into the GI tract, which makes it a lot more tolerable with a side effect profile of that is GI related of a less than 5% in most of the clinical trials. So I think it's how the product and where it's absorbed with the over-the-counter products really being absorbed in the, early in the GI tract, the stomach, et cetera, whereas other products like ferric maltol can move into the, further into the GI tract and we see less side effects. Great. Thanks for clarifying. I think that's real helpful. Lee, um, we have parental options as well for patients that, that need them uh, for various reasons. Can you just uh, review some of those options for our listeners? Parenteral iron, which has actually been around since the early 1900s, uh, has been uh, a source of um, has been a source of of iron for women and men who either can't get blood, refuse to get blood, uh, or don't need blood but do need an iron supplement. And what has happened uh, over the past decade has been the development of a variety of perennial IV irons um, that have a considerably better safety profile than the older iron supplements, which had high rates of anaphylactic reactions uh, and, and actually even in, in a small number of, of 
cases, uh, severe morbidity or even death. Uh, so for me, uh, and I think, I think for almost for everyone, the parenteral option is primarily for those people who cannot tolerate oral iron who have symptomatic, have severe iron deficiency anemia, have, are not able to use oral iron, or, and this is specifically to me, even if they can use oral iron, they need iron supplementation quickly, mainly because, for example, they may be going to surgery in two weeks. And there's just no way that even in a, in, in a compliant patient that we're gonna be able to get enough oral iron into that patient to get that woman to uh, a state, to a hematological state, where she can go through her surgery safely and come out of it safely. Because uh, it's critical to, to correct patients before they go to surgery, which uh, as Wendy has mentioned, this is one uh, big source of iron deficiency anemia, post-operative patients, women or men. Uh, so for me, parental iron is for those who cannot uh, complete an oral iron regimen, or who need their iron supplementation in a more rapid fashion. Thanks, Lee. Wendy, are you doing anything different in your practice or have different guidance for our listeners? No, not at all. What, what uh, Lee just mentioned really guides my practice as well. I have not recommended IV iron in a very long time because we now have options that are a little more palatable for patients. And as a result, we can often replete them if we are creative or if we move toward a prescription options. I don't have access to infusion readily. Logistically, even if I want to do it, it's often very difficult. And I think what's also important is it's often very expensive for our patients as well. Thanks very much, Wendy. So let's move on. We've now um, made the decision to replace iron We've started them on some therapy, the oral or parenteral. Wendy, how do you determine efficacy follow initiation of oral iron replacement? So if you have corrected the problem, so if we figured out why they're bleeding, uh, maybe they're having heavy menstrual cycles and we're correcting that issue, we put them on iron and we would expect that their hematocrit should be rising a point a week. So for instance, if I've got someone whose hematocrit is 28 and I wanna to go to 36, I know it's going to take eight weeks to get them there. So one of the things I will do is one to two weeks into that iron, I'm going to recheck that CBC and look at that hematocrit and make sure it's rising. But the other thing I'm, I would expect to see is that when I give that patient and that iron, the other test I will order if I'm, and so if I'm giving them iron and I'm hitting the mark, I'm correcting the right issue, I would also expect what's known as the reticulocyte percentage to increase. So normally a retic percentage, the immature, per, uh, the uh, percentage of immature red blood cells in circulation normally runs around one to 2%. If I give them iron and it's truly an iron deficiency issue, I would expect that retic percentage to go to six, seven, eight percent So those are two indices that I really like to look at in my patients who are iron deficient as a marker that that treatment is beginning to work. And then certainly talking to the patient about symptomatology. Lee, are you doing anything different with your patients that you prescribe parenteral therapy for? 
So not so much different. Uh, I think one issue that needs to be brought up is when would you evaluate a patient after they've had an IV iron infusion, uh, whether it's a single infusion or whether it's uh, one of the regimens like ferric carboxymaltose, where you do one infusion followed by a second uh, seven days later. So first of all, <clears throat> it's important to wait at least 48 hours uh, after an infusion before checking CBC or any iron indices. Um, I, I, I also uh, agree completely with Wendy uh, about not just checking the iron success, but whether or not we have identified why that patient is iron deficient. So for me, most of that time uh, in getting their uh, iron deficiency corrected is that we have identified it, uh, whether it's fibroids or whatever, they may be having a surgical intervention, they may be having a, a medical intervention, maybe a, an IUD or something that's going to, to hopefully reduce their heavy menstrual bleeding. Uh, but uh, for me, the metaphor that I've always used is the fixing the hole in the bucket. Um, uh, for me as a gynecologist, that's what I do. I, that's the problem. Uh, they're losing blood. They've got a hole in the bucket, and it's my job to identify what that hole is and to fix it. Uh, the issue for me and why I've become uh, so involved with this is that for the most part, uh, the the old school gynecologist would fix the hole in the bucket and then send the patient off to a hematologist or an internist uh, to, to manage the iron issues. And there's no need for that. We can do that. This is this is what we do. We fix the hole in the bucket and we need to refill the bucket once that, that hole is fixed. And so for me, I wait after a perennial, uh, after an IV iron, I'll wait uh, at least 48 hours before checking CBC or even iron studies, uh, but mostly CBC. And, and uh, again, what, what uh, Wendy stated is, is absolutely correct about uh, reticulocytes and, and looking for that increase in either hemoglobin or hematocrit. Uh, for me, I typically use the, the two infusion system. Uh, and so I'm going to be, you know, I can get that done in a week. If her surgery is in two weeks, uh, we've done uh, usually well in getting that iron deficiency anemia, if not completely uh, reversed, but uh, almost entirely reversed at that point. Lee, thanks. I love the hole in the bucket analogy. So Wendy, using his analogy, how do you determine when the hole has been closed and you're, you're, you've achieved your goals? You're, uh, so yes, I, I think that there are a couple of things. One, we just talked about it. You want to make sure you normalize out that hemoglobin and the hematocrit. Once that's normalized, it's also important to remember that you got to fill up the savings account. I know um, Lee uses the hole in the bucket analogy. I often talk, when I speak about anemia, I often talk about the fact that what we need to do is we've depleted the checking account. Once the checking account is full, we need to put some storage back in, right? We need to fill up that savings account. And it takes a good three plus months to replace the iron and give them some iron back in storage. So I think that that those are some, some good ways of determining that one, you've normalized out the CBC, you've corrected the underlying issue, and then importantly, check that ferritin. Make sure that that ferritin is over at least 40 to 45 so that they've got something in storage should they need it again in the future. Fabulous. I'm gonna, Ask one other question about um, 
Co-management with iron supplements, that has been a very common question for our learners in programs that we've done. And the question is really vitamin C or acid compounds such as orange juice. Are you guys rec recommending that to your patients that they co-administer their iron supplements? Wendy, why don't you address that first? Absolutely. The, the most efficacious way to absorb iron is to take the iron on an empty belly first thing in the morning separating it apart by at least two hours from medicines that have a narrow therapeutic index, i.e. your thyroid meds, for instance, and also asking them to take it with some vitamin C, for, for instance, orange juice, because that helps to enhance absorption. The problem is, I told you that's the most efficient, efficacious way to take iron. It's also the way that most people will find that they can't tolerate the iron. But we start there because that really is how we absorb most iron. Thank you very much. L last thing I'm going to ask, uh, Lee, two pearls that about the management of iron deficiency anemia that you can share with our audience before we wrap up. So the two pearls are this. One, one is regarding uh, the oral iron. Uh, while I may use more parenteral iron than Wendy, uh, that's primarily because uh, of more of a preoperative issue. Uh, we've, got a, uh, we've got a shortened period of time that we need to refill the checking account. I am going to borrow that for, from you, Wendy. Uh, refill the checking account, uh, fill, fill the bucket, whatever. Uh, because we do know that, that uh, folks who go into surgery uh, anemic have far greater postoperative morbidity and even mortality. So um, first of all, when it comes to oral iron, find a method that is going to be least likely to incur GI effects. Uh, for me, ferric maltol has been a game changer for me, for my patients. Uh, yes, it's prescriptive, uh, but it, it really does lead to a considerably lower rate uh, of adverse GI side effects. And I agree also with fer ferrous fumarate, uh, if for whatever reason they can't get ferric maltol, find an oral iron that's going to be more likely than not successful in getting to, to where you want to be. Not that parenteral iron is a terrible thing, but it is more expensive. And, and, and while I do have easier access than Wendy does uh, to an infusion center, in fact, it's on our floor, uh, if we can get this done with oral iron, if we can get them back to a good level, uh, keep them on it for at least three months afterwards to maintain uh, that, that iron uh, level, that's what you need to do. Um, and, and again, uh, the other thing is, and, and specific to uh, a woman's healthcare practice, identify the problem and fix it. Uh, because if you don't fix the hole in the bucket, uh, it's going to continue to leak and you're just going to be back uh, to where you are um, uh, later on, uh, if you don't fix the, fix the problem. And again, I, I don't want our listeners to think that the, the fixing is always surgical. Uh, hormonal contraceptives, intrauterine devices, a variety of things. Uh, there are non-surgical approaches for fibroids. Um, uh, the GnRH antagonists, uh, uh, you know, radiological procedure. Uh, uh, uterine artery embolization. There are a lot of things that are conservative that don't require a surgical approach. There will be some women for whom surgery is the only option, but for me in my practice, that is truly at the end of the diagnostic and therapeutic road. Wendy, two pearls from you. 
Pearl number one, 50% of our patients on over-the-counter or iron supplements will have GI discomfort, GI side effects that are going to cause them to stop taking the medication. I would encourage people to book a follow-up for these folks, not only to recheck their labs, but to also make sure that they are, that they are taking the medicine. Because oftentimes when we send people on to over-the-counter meds, to them an over-the-counter med doesn't feel as important as a prescription. And they often will not perceive the importance of taking this medication. And when they can't tolerate it and they're nauseated, it's the first thing that they're going to discontinue. So book a follow-up because 50% are going to stop their medication. Number two, recognize that once you correct the anemia, your treatment doesn't stop here. You need to fill up the savings account. It takes a good three months to replace that ferritin and make sure you recheck that ferritin at that three to six month mark after you have treated and corrected the anemia to ensure that they've got a backup should they need to, to go into those iron stores again. Thank you. Lee, Wendy, those were fabulous points. Thank you so much. But unfortunately, we are at the end of our time today, and I have to bring our conversation to an end. Um, if you missed it, Lee, Wendy, and I discussed patient screening and diagnosis and iron deficiency in our first podcast in this series titled The Unmet, Unmet Needs of Iron Deficiency, Screening and Diagnosis. You can find this podcast on this site or wherever you find your podcasts. I'd like to thank our faculty once again, Drs. Wendy Wright and Lee Schulman for being with us today as we talk about iron deficiency anemia. Thank you so much, Lee and Wendy. Thank you. Thanks very much, Greg. It was great to be here. If you're interested in learning more about this or other topics, you can go to the NACE website at naceonline.com and register for an upcoming live virtual program or any of our other enduring activities which we've developed. Please like us on Facebook at NACME to be part of our online social media community and get access to other content and programs we share. Finally, I want to thank you, our audience, for joining us for this podcast. I hope you've learned something new you can bring back to your practice. We look forward to having you join us for other upcoming podcasts in the future.